Ho, every mother's son and daughter, here's the gospel in the water. Here's the ancient gospel way. Here's the road to endless day. Here begins the reign of heaven. Here your sins shall be forgiven. Every mother's son and daughter, here's the gospel in the water. All ye sons of Adam's race, come and share this watery grace. Water gives the soul promotion. Water is the healing lotion. Water purifies the nation. Water is regeneration. Every mother's son and daughter, here's the gospel in the water. That's the opening two stanzas from a 19th century satirical poem that became popular among Methodist in particular, entitled Alexander the Great, or The Learned Camel. And it continues on there for several stanzas, and it becomes increasingly unflattering as it goes, but obviously, The Learned Camel, Alexander the Great, this is about Alexander Campbell, and it's about that Campbellite doctrine connecting baptism to forgiveness of sins, the gospel in the water. Now, that message is pretty distorted in that poem. I think that's uh, pretty clear. There's nothing inherently magical in the waters of baptism. You certainly haven't heard me get up here and talk about it as a, a healing lotion or that water itself brings regeneration. Baptism has no value apart from a, a penitent faith. The power isn't in the water itself. The power is in the working of God as he promises in and through baptism. But the point is, churches of Christ have been and continue to be strongly associated with this emphasis on the necessity of baptism. And rightfully so. Because that emphasis is consistent, I think, with what the New Testament teaches about baptism. And it's a minority view in the religious world. That is, this is something that's different. This is something that distinguishes us from so many professing groups. And there's significant things at stake here. How we approach God, how we become members of his people, how we appropriate what he's offered to us in Christ. These are fundamental doctrines. We should always hold fast to these. That's why for those of you in our Sunday morning class, we just recently spent several weeks talking about the significance of baptism and why this is one of the doctrines that is distinctive for us. But all of that also means that it's really tough to have just one lesson on baptism. What do you say? <laughs> Those of you who do the reading in our books week to week might have noticed, in fact, I think the author of our material this week had some trouble with that because most of what he had to say was only tangentially related to baptism. It was sort of scratching the surface, but he didn't know too much to say to people who presumably are already uh, committed to what we're talking about with baptism. We've all heard sermons on this. We've all heard classes on this since we were young. We just had the two, bab 
baptisms today of, of Matthew and Joseph, and they themselves have spent several weeks studying with Robert. So they all know about baptism and why it's important and why they needed to do what they did today. So, in other words, a Sunday night crowd isn't the type that's likely to get very much out of a first principles type lesson on Acts 2.38 and why you need to repent and be baptized. Or even out of Romans 6 that was read just a few minutes ago, there's a lot of important stuff there that baptism unites us with Christ, that we contact his blood there when we're baptized into his death, that in it we die to sin and we're raised up to walk in newness of life. We're new creatures, new creations. All that's extremely important, but we know that. We've been there and we've done that because this is something we've talked about so much. And I'm not saying that there's no more for us to learn on the subject. I think there's always more to learn. But the thing is, it requires several lessons digging in really deep. We can't really break any new ground for a field that we've plowed so thoroughly here in just one lesson this evening. But I think, too, about what we've tried to emphasize over the past several weeks in this unit, looking at these terms associated with our response to the gospel, with faith, with repentance, with confession. And we've tried to emphasize how climbing stairs, moving from believe to repent to confess, so on and so forth, is probably not the most helpful analogy to really understand what Scripture's talking about when we're making this response to the gospel. These things aren't just one-time acts. They continue throughout life. It's probably misleading to think of them in sequence as if I do one and then I do the other and then I do the other because really, in some cases, they happen simultaneously. This is talking about a comprehensive response that we make. And these things aren't arbitrary. As we've said, when you think of them only as I do this and now I do this, there's a tendency to think of them as only doing them because God said it. But what we've emphasized is that, no, this is the natural way that you respond to the gospel. I can only be saved if I trust what God's given me. That's faith. And if I turn to him to receive it, and I have to confess or profess that faith, or it's not really faith, all of these things are just naturally how we must respond to the gospel. But baptism is different. Baptism is a one-time act, unlike those other things. That is, we, we never stop believing, we never stop repenting, we never stop confessing, but you're only baptized once. It's once for all. And unlike those others, we may think of it as arbitrary. At least it doesn't seem natural in quite the same way that faith and repentance and confession do. So tonight, we want to talk about why it may not be quite as arbitrary as it appears. Try to connect it to these other concepts a little bit better. Why is it important? Where did it come from? Why does God tell us to do this? And to do that, I think it's important for us to see the origin of baptism. Where does it come from? And we want tonight, for just a few minutes, to look at a topic we probably haven't considered too much, but it's in the background of our baptism, and we need to understand it to really understand what baptism's all about, and that's the baptism of John. You see, this question about where does baptism come from, you know this if you've spent any time thinking about this at all. You read the Old Testament. Do you find anything about baptism? 
No, it's not there. And then you read the New Testament, and man, it's everywhere. It suddenly appears on the scene, and then it is inescapable throughout the book. John the Baptist emerged, and he was baptizing, Mark chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus, just a few verses later in that chapter, he goes down to the Jordan to be baptized by John as an adult, verses 9 through 11. Jesus started preaching baptism then, and his disciples baptized other followers for him, John chapter 3. After his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples that they would go out and they would make more disciples by baptizing them. That's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Peter preached it as the means of conversion, and 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost and added to the church. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and then verse number 41. And if you just flip through Acts, you'll see that everywhere the church goes, baptism goes. This isn't even every example, but you think about Acts chapter 8 and verse 38. We have the Ethiopian eunuch. He goes down to the water with Philip, and he's baptized. Chapter 10, verse 48, Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit's fallen upon them, and Peter says, how can we withhold baptism from these who have received the Spirit just as we did at the beginning? Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, Lydia and her household out by the place of prayer, the river in Philippi. Paul baptizes them. And just a few verses later, the Philippian jailer, verse number 33, he comes in and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they talked to him about the Lord Jesus, and that very same night they went out and they baptized. And then if you look through Paul's letters, Paul's letters take it for granted that if you call yourself a Christian, you have been baptized. In fact, that's why you can call yourself a Christian. We already read Romans 6 verses uh, 1 through 7 a few moments ago where he talks about being baptized into his death. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 says that we have been baptized by one spirit into that one body. Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 and 27, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, those seven great ones, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. On and on and on we could go like this. The point is around every corner in the New Testament we find baptism waiting for us. It's emphasized repeatedly. But if you search the Old Testament, you're not going to find baptism there. We get to the New Testament. And suddenly, it's everywhere. And it all starts with John the Baptist, or maybe better, John the Baptizer. So what's going on here anyway? What is John doing when it says he's baptizing? What does Scripture mean by that? Now, this is pretty fundamental here, but I think it is worth noting. Whatever it is, it certainly involves water, right? After all, John was out baptizing in the Jordan River. Mark chapter 1 and verse 5. The baptism of Jesus resulted in him coming up from the water. Mark chapter 1 and verse 10. And in fact, John tells them in verse number 8 of that same chapter to be baptized with water. So baptism involves water. What did John do with that water? Did he pour it over people's heads? Did he just sprinkle them with it? Did he take them completely under that's a question worth asking because we know that all of those things are in different religious groups referred to as baptism. Baptism 
The way John practiced it, the way that it's referred to in the New Testament is complete immersion or submersion in water. And we know that, for one thing, just by looking at the meaning of the word. Now, the word for to baptize is baptizo, but that comes from the original Greek word is bapto, which just means to dip or to plunge. Now, later on, bapto came to be used for dying. It meant to die because that was, that is D-Y-E, not D-I-E, to be clear. To die because that was the common method of dying things, dying cloth, to dip it or plunge it completely. And so, baptizo came to be used for uh, dipping or plunging or immersing. I dip, I plunge, I immerse. That's technically an intensifier of bapto. So baptizo, the word that's translated or transliterated, baptize, means to dip, to plunge, to immerse through a complete and total submerging. It was the word that was used for a ship sinking, for instance. It was used in secular Greek for someone who's drowning. It took on a metaphorical meaning of being overwhelmed by something because you're completely underneath the flood here. So the word is referring, strictly speaking, to a complete submersion in water. So when we read that John was baptizing, what we really should read, Scripture literally says that John taught immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. In verse 8 there, he says, I immersed you with water. Of course, the reason our translations say baptize instead of immerse is for political reasons. When the first English translations were being made, the common mode of baptism was not immersion. And so rather than introducing any confusion, they just transliterated it as baptize. And that's why it continues to be with us today, because it's a sort of technical religious term. But whenever we read that word baptize, we could plug in words like immerse, or submerse, or dip, or plunge, or you name it, anything that's synonymous like that, if we want to understand it better. And of course, that's supported by New Testament descriptions of baptism. It's called a burial on more than one occasion. It's called that in Romans 6, right? If you remember, we read that a few moments ago. It's called that in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. What does burial imply? A complete placement of a body underneath the ground or in a tomb. Same thing is true of baptism. Complete placement of a body underneath the water. That's why John baptized in places where there was much water. John chapter 3 and verse number 23. He's just flicking a little water on people's heads. He could have done that at the local cistern. He wouldn't need all of that water. In Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, you remember, both go down into the water. Now, I know, we know all of this, everything I've been covering for the last three or four minutes here, we all know about that method of baptism, that it means immersion. But why immersion is the question. What's the significance of that? And I can't say that for certain, but I think if we think about its connection to our salvation, we can come up with a couple of good answers. One, perhaps it's a burial in water because of that symbolic connection, that reminder of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. 
we know that that at least is something that's in mind with that imagery of baptism because that's what we just read in Romans 6 a little while ago. Or perhaps, too, it was the natural connection to washing, being purified, being cleansed when we have our sins washed away. In any case, all the evidence points to baptism being a complete submerging in water. That's what baptism is. Now, with all that said, the question I really want us to ask, and maybe something new for us to ponder and think about and take home and make some connections with tonight, why did John start doing this? What's the origin of the practice? Because as we said, you don't have this practiced in the Old Testament, and then suddenly John appears and he starts commanding people to be baptized. So where did he get this idea? Washings for purification were common in Judaism. They were common in paganism too, for that matter, but John was a Jew, so we want to focus on that Jewish background. They employed water for washing impurities away, for purifying themselves, and the way that they did that was immersing their entire bodies. That was the common Jewish method of purification. They had pools called mikvahs that were used for this purpose, for immersing the entire body. And in fact, we found over 150 of these in the old city of Jerusalem that date back to the first century. So incidentally, if someone, as they once did, they don't do this so much now that archaeologists have found this, but one of the arguments against immersion used to be that, well, how in the world could they baptize those 3,000 on the day of Pentecost by immersing them? Well, if you got 150-plus mikvahs around, it would have been pretty easy. In fact, they were used to immersing large groups of these people. For purification on the Day of Atonement, for instance, the high priest would immerse himself five separate times so that he could be sure to be cleansed repeatedly from any impurity. So in other words, I mentioned that connection. Why baptism? I think part of it is this connection to cleansing, to purification. John's baptism shared with these Jewish ritual washings uh, this concept of being cleansed, being purified. There was also, secondly, a baptismal movement at Qumran. Qumran is the area by the Dead Sea, the place there, the caves, where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard of those. Most scholars think that these were the Essenes. Uh, that is a sort of ascetic movement that lived there in a sort of private community, a religious sect of Judaism. They immersed themselves for purification the same way that mainstream Jews did. But this is a separatist community. So they also practiced immersion as an initiation rite. That is, you had to be immersed before they'd allowed you to become one of their people there. There's also, thirdly, proselyte baptism. That is, baptisms that were practiced for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. When we look later on, when the rabbis started writing things down in the Mishnah and then the Talmud, uh, according to rabbinic tradition, there were three requirements for a Gentile converting to Judaism. Circumcision, immersion, and sacrifice. Now, I will point out here that we don't have any evidence of the Jews practicing proselyte baptism before the time of John. 
In other words, it seems a lot more likely that they started practicing that after Christians were practicing it. They were influenced by Christian practice rather than the other way around. But the point of this, all of these are in the background of what John is doing when he tells people to be baptized. You think about the commonalities. Just like all of these, John's baptism was an immersion. All of these were immersions. Just like all of them, John's baptism had an association with purification and with cleansing. But there were some important differences, too. The first one is that unlike those other baptisms, John's baptism was administered. That is, all these ritual cleansings, even at Qumran, even at those proselyte baptisms, you did all that yourself. That's why we don't really read about baptism in the Old Testament because even when you were washing, cleansing, dunking, being dunked, it wasn't done to you. It's something that you did. But John was baptizing. He was immersing others. That's the whole reason he got that name. John the Baptist, or more literally, John the Baptizer, John the Immerser, because that's different. Nobody had ever seen anything like that. They recognize some commonalities, but the fact that someone else is doing this to you, that's something that's unique, unusual, it's different. That's the whole reason it distinguished him as his nickname. Secondly, while John's baptism related to cleansing like these others did, it operated on a whole different level. This wasn't just about ritual cleansing that is something that had to be repeated again and again and again and again every time that you became unclean this was an eschatological act that's one of those hundred dollar words that just means it had to do with the last days that is it's looking towards the end time this is about the new thing that God's doing so in other words this is something that you do to be right with God in his new age this is a one-time act once for all not something that you repeat again and again and again. His baptism was associated with forgiveness and with repentance, specifically to prepare people for the new thing that God was doing. Now that means it was like proselyte baptism and that proselyte baptism was also a one-time act. But here's the difference between John's baptism and proselyte baptism. John's baptism was given to Jews. Proselyte baptism was for Gentiles. That is, they were going from outside the Jewish community to inside. But John's message is pretty revolutionary in that he says Jews aren't right with God just because they're Jews. They need to repent. They need to turn to God. They need to be cleansed too. So we think about all those things in the background and we can survey the New Testament texts that talk about John to get an idea of the meaning of his baptism. And I'm going to read through these and we'll just briefly comment about them, but I encourage you to take the time to, to read these yourself and to think about these things we're mentioning. Mark's treatment is the briefest. We'll begin there, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God... As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So note the essential points here. John's preparing for the coming of the Lord, verses 2 and 3. He's the messenger who's preparing that way. Great numbers came out to be baptized by him, verse number 5. And you note what his baptism is associated with. With forgiveness, with confession of sin, and with repentance. That's all there in verse number 4. And then he announced the coming of that one. Uh, the Messiah, who would bring the Holy Spirit, verses 7 and 8. And I think it's worth noting, this is why it's important for us to have some understanding of John's baptism. Mark says the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the good news about Jesus, where does it begin? It begins with John the Baptist. If we want to understand our baptism, we need to have some idea of why this is important. If we flip back to Matthew chapter 3, Beginning in verse 1, Matthew says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you notice here, John's message was repentance, verse number three, and that was made urgent by the approach of the kingdom of heaven and that wrath was coming. That's verse two and verse seven. And he says, don't trust in being Jews. Repentance is what's required and fruit worthy of that repentance, verses nine and 10. So part of his point here is that repentance has results You'll be able to see it, verse number 8. Baptism accordingly is done with reference to repentance, verse number 8, and confession of sin, verse number 6. Immersion took place in the Jordan. It was administered by John the way we've talked about back in verse number 6. And again, like in Mark, we see that it was with a view to the coming of the Lord, one who he says is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, That fire's probably a reference to judgment there at the end of the chapter. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, Luke's is really similar to Matthew. It's just an expanded account, so we're not going to read all that. 
uh, especially because Luke's covers 20 verses, so for time's sake, we won't. But uh, the major expansion here is the instruction John gives to the crowds in Luke 3, starting in verse 10, just this brief section. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, We, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. So in other words, these spell out, the fruits worthy of repentance. This shows how these things are connected together, much like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Repentance requires a particular way of life. It's not just a one-time act. You've got to continue to live that repentance out. Now, finally, we could look at John's account, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 37, and I, I won't read all of that, but this does add the direct testimony of John to Jesus. And he says there, and I'll just read part of it. Verse number 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So John's purpose here is to bear testimony to that Lamb of God, the one who takes away sin. And even though John came first, John says he has priority. He outranks me. And he goes on to say that he baptizes not only with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know we went through those fast, but here's what I want us to note. And you can go back and, and read these yourselves. And, of course, these accounts should be tolerably familiar to us. but from these, we can come up with a list of, of functions that are either uh, overtly ascribed to John's baptism or they're at least implicit in all these. For one, John's baptism expressed conversionary repentance, that is, turning to a new way of life. If you're baptized by John, it demonstrated that you're turning in a new direction here. Secondly, it mediated God's forgiveness to the people. That is, John says, if you repent and you're baptized, you will have forgiveness of sins. That was the promise with this. Third, it purified from uncleanness. There's that connection with the symbolism of washing, with moral uncleanness in particular. But fourth and finally, it also foreshadowed the ministry of an expected figure, the Messiah, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see that significance and we ask, okay, then where does this come from? Why did John start doing this? Well, first and foremost, because God told him to. <laughs> that might seem pretty obvious, but I think it's worth noting. It says in John chapter 1, verse 33, John himself says, God sent me to baptize with water. Luke writes that it was the counsel of God that he do this. So in other words, John didn't just come up with this idea on his own. This is something that God commissioned him to do which I think, incidentally, it's worth noting, this is an implicit rejection of the temple and its sacrificial system because now John is saying, this is how you receive forgiveness. You 
believe in God, you turn to him in repentance and you're baptized. The temple and sacrifice no longer are the sources of forgiveness. But the second reason John did this was to prepare the way for Jesus, wasn't it? His role was to point to Jesus, as we just read. John saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus at his baptism, and then he told others that they needed to follow him. And, of course, it also helped prepare for the baptism that Jesus would teach. That is, I said, John's baptism was novel. Nobody else was doing anything like this. Well, now when Jesus tells people to do it, they'll know. They'll have been prepared because John was already doing this. Third and finally, John's baptism helped fulfill God's purpose in the lives of others. That is, God wanted people to be baptized, and people who rejected baptism were rejecting God's will. I think that's really important for us to keep in mind. John knew the importance of telling people what God wanted them to do. And in fact, that's why Jesus was baptized, wasn't it? Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15, Jesus didn't have any sin to be forgiven of. John says there, you've come down here to be baptized by me. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Jesus says, allow it to be so because it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. That is, this had to take place because this was God's will for his people. There was no way for Jesus to fulfill God's requirements perfectly if he wasn't baptized. And the upshot of that is that God's plan for his people now includes baptism. Of course, we don't study the baptism of John that much because we know the story doesn't end with him. John's role was to decrease while Jesus increased, as he himself said. And that meant that his baptism didn't last forever. In fact, if you read in Acts chapter 19, it's pretty clear that his baptism was no longer valid with those disciples at Ephesus. But while John's baptism was only temporary, I think it's important that we have some understanding of it not only as a forerunner to our baptism as Christians, but I think when we start to look into some of these things that maybe we hadn't considered, it helps us understand this a little more comprehensively. It helps us understand this connection between baptism and salvation, between baptism and and repentance and confession, all these things we see in these accounts. Both our baptism and John's baptism are immersions. Both of them are from God. He commanded it. Both of them, it's clear that this is God's plan for your life. He's not pleased if you're not immersed. Both of them are connected with repentance. Both of them are connected with confession. Both of them are connected with the forgiveness of sins. In fact, there are two things really that distinguish our baptism from John's. One is that ours is in the name of Jesus. I think it's interesting. Go study baptism. I said this in that Sunday morning class. Go get a concordance. Go study baptism. And the one thing you'll see associated with it more than anything else is the name of Jesus. That's important. Our baptism, unlike John's, unites us with Jesus. And also the gift of the Holy Spirit. John even says that the Spirit will come with Jesus' baptism. And that's that great blessing that we have as Christians that distinguishes us uh, in that privilege from those who went before. But I hope tonight, even if this lesson has been a little unconventional, we've been breaking some new ground here, maybe some things you haven't thought about before. I hope that it's maybe given us some food for thought to go and to deepen our own studies on baptism. And the main thing I want us to take away 
let's never forget the significance of baptism. Let's never neglect the important place that it has in our lives. Even for those of us who've studied this a lot, for those of us who were baptized years or decades ago and think that we don't have to think about this too much anymore, this is important stuff. And it's important for us to be able to think about it and to talk about it to others. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to convince people like those two boys who were baptized this morning. Now, of course, even if baptism is a once-for-all act, our obedience to God, our repentance, our faith, our confession, those must be kept up throughout our life. Maybe you're here this evening and in some way you've failed to keep up that part of the bargain. Your life is out of step with what God would have it to be. If that's the case, if you need to make changes tonight in order to be back in that right relationship with God, I encourage you, take the opportunity you have now to make your need known while we stand and while we sing. I was 